Thanks a million for tuning in to Shoot the Breeze with Alexandre Marie. I'm your host, Alexandre Marie. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Alexandre Marie underscore talks. That's Alexandre, A L E X A N D R E Marie, M A R I E underscore talks, T A L K S, on Instagram as well as on Facebook. Shoot the Breeze with Alexandre Marie is a podcast for the people by the people. I want you guys to feel as if we're on the phone. As if we're just two friends, chilling, relaxing, getting to know one another. And when I have a guest on, just imagine it's another friend with us. It's not going to be crazy formal, though I will have certain distinguished guests, such as doctors, councilmen, councilwomen, But before they get on, I'm going to let them know it's okay to let your guard down. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, listen, download on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Dizzer, and more. Truth the Breeze with Alexandria Marie is on 18 major music and podcast platforms. For a list, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash Alexandre hyphen Marie, or you can go on my Instagram, Alexandre Marie underscore talks, click highlights and actually see all 18 music and podcast platforms. Again, thanks a million for tuning in. I hope you like the show. everyone. In today's episode, I will be joined by Randy Boyd, an African-American gay LGBTQ activist, HIV and AIDS activist, writer, author, who is living and surviving with HIV for 30 years. Please help me welcome Randy Boyd to the show. Hello. I am super grateful uh, to actually have you on to do this episode with me, Randy. Well, thank you, Alexandre Marie. Am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. But you could just call me Alex. It's a really long name. (laughs) (laughs) It's really long. I know. Well, I'm also grateful that you uh, thought of me to have me on. So uh, thank you for that. Of course. Welcome to the Shoot the Breeze with Alexandria Marie family. Let's shoot the breeze. (laughs) Of course, of course. So I know a little bit about you from going through your Instagram and everything. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your work? Sure. Well, my name is Randy Boyd. And I'm an author. Um, you can find me on the usual social media haunts as at Randy Boyd author. 
It's definitely my uh, public identity. I've been a writer my entire adult life, and um, I'm in my late 50s now, very late. You're <laughs> <laughs> looking good. I'm telling you guys, I need to look you up. He looks amazing. Uh, I could not believe he's in his uh, late 50s. Oh, my gosh. I, well, I'm paying her to say that. No, I'm kidding. But... Um, yeah, I've been a professional writer since age 20, so it's a, a pretty pretty long time, a pretty uh, varied career, but I'm most proud of my four novels. They're kind of mm-hmm. like my kids, and they've been nominated for a total of five Lambda Literary Awards. Now, nice. thank you. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the Lambda Literary Awards are probably the most distinguished and longest-running awards for LG. B, T, Q, books. Um, you laugh because you didn't remember the other letters, huh? Well, it, it doesn't roll <laughs> off. It doesn't roll off my tongue, Alex. I have to tell you that. <laughs> I believe it. Trust me. Uh, but um, my books do fit under that category, um, primarily probably because I myself am same gender loving. Um, mm. <laughs> and although my books aren't just about gay people or gay topics they they cover a variety of things um but they all do feature uh main characters who are black same gender loving and also hiv positive good we need a lot of those yeah i think so um it's time you know characters who look like me who think like me have adventures two of my books are thrillers uh, one of them is, is an assassination thriller. Um, uh, one of them is a love story that revolves around football. Another one is a heartwarming tale about a young man coming to grips with becoming HIV positive. Um, mm-hmm. So the themes are kind of woven in there, but I also like to think they deal with a lot of universal things, love, loss, hope. Things that, you know, for some reason, society, especially Black society, feel as though gay men don't you know, deal with, or they're not, how can I say, that they shouldn't have the right to deal with. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, we've seen an explosion in the last 10 years of television and streaming television of Black characters who do things that Black people never did before uh, Mm -hmm. in television. Um, Scandal comes to mind. You know, Carrie Washington playing this character who does all these fantastic things and, and Grey's Anatomy, you've got shows littered with doctors and lawyers and and people caught up in thrillers and spies and, and dealing with all the things, the fun things that people can do in, in stories. And um, I like to think that that's what I'm doing with putting my stories out there featuring black gay men who are dealing with HIV positive, but they're also dealing with other things in life and it's entertaining as well. And uh, there's never been a better, more open time for such diverse voices, I, I feel. Of course, I mean, not to say that HIV isn't a big deal, it is, but I mean, what's the difference with you living with kidney failure, living with cancer, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's just a diagnosis, it doesn't make you less of a person, but for people in our community, um, the black community rather it they do view people with hiv as less than 
Yes, I, I know that pretty well myself. Uh, the reason my characters are HIV positive has a lot to do with myself being HIV positive, which I've almost been as long as I've been a professional writer. Um, I was first diagnosed in 19... Well, I realized I had it in 1985 and I was 23 years old. Wow. How? How? Like, <laughs> I mean, you said you realized you had it. So were there any symptoms? Yes, that's exactly what happened. It was 1985 and I was having night sweats, something I'd never heard about, you know, sweating at night, um, soaking up the bed. Mm-hmm. And it was also, uh, it was July 1985. And it was also the time when the actor Rock Hudson admitted to the world that the rumors were true, that he did have AIDS. And for people who were too, too young or weren't there to remember, Rock Hudson was a huge actor. It would be like Tom Cruise coming out admitting he had this strange new disease today Mm -hmm. uh so it was a big it was a big day Uh, anyone who's an adult in america remembers where they were when they heard about rock hudson the news coverage was vast it was all over the news aids was forefront like it had never been before it was only a few years it only been around a few years and on the coverage that night um they had doctors on there and the doctors were saying we don't know much about this disease. Um, it affects a lot of gay people, also a lot of people of color, drug users, um, prostitutes. We, we think it's sexually, uh, spread it sexually that way. And one of the biggest symptoms is night sweats. Right. And I put it together in my mind, my recent mm-hmm. history and the night sweats I was having. And I realized I'm just like Rod Hudson. Were there any like flu-like symptoms? Because, you know, that's what they normally say now. Like if you have flu-like symptoms for about like two to four weeks that don't go away and then out of nowhere, it disappears. You should get tested. Right. I think for me, it was the night sweats. I don't specifically remember the flu-like symptoms, but I think the night sweats were kind of flu-like in, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just, it, it was just, it was just, un- it was just very clear to me. I did wait to actually get tested for three years because, really? well, Why? yeah, the, the thing about it, Alex, at that time, getting, uh, being HIV positive puts you at risk for other things. So much discrimination. It, uh, in California at the time, there was, they were actually, um, some politicians were trying to uh, drum up a law that would quarantine people with HIV. Mm. So you faced a lot of hurdles Mm -hmm. being HIV. So the consensus um, among activists at the time was do not get tested. You could end up in a list or in a quarantine or who knows where. And there wasn't much it wasn't much, there wasn't much science could do about it. So, you know, that was really all there was, was getting tested is you'll know, and now you'll be at risk and you can get ready to die. Oh my goodness. It was a terrible, it was a terrible time. It was very frightening. I could just 
Oh my, I could just imagine. So those three years, what, if you don't mind, what's going through your mind those three years? I mean, you have this inkling that you might be HIV positive and you're still a young adult, you know, entering your manhood and you wait for three years. So those three years, what, what was going on? Well, I didn't have really anyone to turn to. So I wasn't articulating what was going on even to myself. I kept it private. I hoped it wasn't true. I basically sort of lived two different lives. One was a life where I was outgoing and happy and the other one was scared of this coming to bear. Mm. Scared of the symptoms coming and then people would find out. Obviously, anyone young who's, you know, getting sick and thin at that point, people are going to sort of put it together. So I just sort of lived on two tracks. One where I hope it's not true. I hope no one ever finds out. I hope I don't die. And the other one was just kind of holding my breath. And this was in an environment where people were talking about AIDS. People were very scared of it. Like I said, after the Rock Hudson um, story, it was a very big deal in this country that I call it AIDS panic in America. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just sort of uh, kept my mouth shut, kept my head low as far as that was concerned and um, held my breath. So you weren't experiencing any other kind of symptoms during those three years, like the night sweats, you know, went away and everything was back to normal or were you periodically, systematically, you know, dealing with certain symptoms? I don't think I had a direct threat that was AIDS related. Of course, I I got sick. I had bronchitis one time. I was very worried about that and worried whether or not I should tell my doctors. Again, worried about being, would the doctors treat me? Would I I be on a quarantine list? But when I did finally get tested, it was because uh, I thought I might be having a symptom. I was sick and it didn't feel... um, I didn't feel very good about that. And it was more, it was a case of, I, I need to know now. So every time that I do get sick, I don't go into this full panic. And, and, and if I do need to go into the panic, then I should know. So that's what finally happened in May of 1988. And I did get tested. And the doctor said, he, he called me on the phone and he said, you don't have AIDS, but you do have the AIDS virus. Mm. I remember seeing that post on your um, Facebook, I mean, not Facebook, Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and I think I also wrote a blog post about it uh, on my blog where I have a category called HIV POV, which I write some of my stories uh, dealing with it. And yeah, that was um, that was the life changing confirmation of what I had already suspected for three years. And um, it's still kind of amazing, Alex, that I'm here today talking to you on a podcast in almost 2020. (laughs) I know. And I'm telling you, you guys, you got to look at this man's picture. You need to look him up. I mean, he is fit. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of that, it's very interesting. And I appreciate that. Um, When I did get tested in 1988, there wasn't much else to do uh, but hope for the best. And be as healthy as you can, mentally, physically, spiritually. Mm-hmm. And hope that was good enough to keep you afloat. 
And so I did. I started working out uh, regularly. I, I did all the things that one needs to do to be their them to be themselves at their best. Right. Working out, uh, eating right, very healthy. Um, went to therapy to get my mind in shape, and all of this was because that was the only real defense I had against the virus that anyone had at that time. There were no medications, and uh, there were a few medications that they harmed patients more than they helped, and so. Um, it just sort of put me in that frame of mind. Now, I haven't always been fit every single day since 1988. I've had my ups and downs and weight gains mm-hmm. and so forth. Life life happens, right? Right. But looking through your um, Instagram page, you've always been, you know, pretty fit or active rather, you know, baseball, football, um, cheerleading squad. So it's not too far-fetched that you took that route, you know, to get very active or more active and and get, you know, fit mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. It's not that far-fetched. I mean, you, you've already were doing it for most of your life. Yes, I, I, I've always thought that was important. And I think, as I've learned over the years, it's important to always do it more often than not. Mm-hmm. So let's say, and over the last 30 years, I've probably had a good 20-something of those years where I was really on point and eating right and exercising and maybe a couple of years of, you know, life taking me in another direction. But I always get back to it because the more you do it, if you do it more, if you stay in shape mentally, physically, spiritually, if you if you're making that effort more often than not, you're going to end up ahead of the game. Right. That's always been my philosophy. So you weren't receiving treatments or rather there, there weren't much treatments back then. When and if did you start receiving treatments? Well, at first, um, when I first became uh, knowingly HIV positive in 1988, there were definitely no medications that were very helpful. There was one called AZT and it, it made more people sick. Most people taking it at the time have thought it made them worse. And thought, and some people alive today even thought not taking AZT probably helped them, their odds of survival. So I was in that category of not taking those early drugs. However, my health by the early 90s um, was declining and I had to. Now, again, these aren't the drugs that we know today that help people with HIV live long, prosperous lives. These were still early attempts at trying to find something that mitigates the situation. And I began those in the early 90s. Um, you know, I remember one of them, it gives, one of them gave you these strange sort of psychedelic dreams at night that you never want to have. Oh my. <laughs> you know, other ones had really bad side effects. So it was, it was all quite a little up and down roller coaster. But then 1995, Christmas, as a matter of fact, how about that? as we talk now during the holiday season. Christmas 1995, the, um, it was announced that the first protease inhibitors, a kind of drug that um, messes with HIV enough that weakens it, was approved. And I got on those in early 1996. And that was the first real hope, Alex, of any kind of medicine really helping. Wow. Yeah. 
So by that time, it's almost been 10 years, right? It had almost been 10 years that I had been uh, HIV positive, yes. Mm-hmm. And every, it, you know, it's also interesting too, because you go from a time in the 80s where the thinking is you get, H- you get HIV, you're going to die. And at first the life expectancy was maybe 12 to 18 months. So each year that myself and others are living, we're rewriting the science books. We're making science realize, oh, a person with HIV can live two years. A person with HIV can live four years, six years, and so on. So we were, I mean, we were kind of making it up as we went along, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, 96 was the first real glimmer of hope. And ever since then, the medicine has just been on this roll of creating wonderful drugs that weaken HIV enough that it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a problem in one's body. Right. It becomes undetectable. Undetectable. Um, Just maybe a little thing that kind of hides in the recesses, but doesn't mess with your body, can't be transmitted, and people can live full and healthy lives. Um, And that's a... You know, it seemed like science fiction all those years ago, but it's a science fact and it's a it's a great day to be alive with HIV, frankly. Yes, I definitely believe that. But one of the drugs, I'm not really fond of how they're marketing it. You know, every time I see a commercial, of course, yes, they have like gays and blacks, but it's kind of like it's kind of like you're promiscuous. So take this drug and you won't get HIV and AIDS. That's how it's coming across to me. And I'm just like, you gotta, I don't like this. It has to be marketed and branded different because it's still market and branded in such a way that only promiscuous individuals and addicts have HIV and AIDS. And that's not the case. There's people that have been married. There's, you know, doctors, lawyers, you, you could just catch it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're sleeping around with everybody and you're injecting yourself all the time with drugs. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you made some very valid points. As much as we can shoot the breeze and rave about how far science has come, it almost seems the opposite for society for people's reactions, for the stigma that's still very much out there. And I think it even goes to the marketing you're talking about, the corporate nature, the corporate messages. Outside of the the medical um, achievements, I'm not sure we've made those same kind of, in fact, I know we haven't made those same kind of achievements in society when it comes to accepting people with HIV, and our, and our thoughts about HIV and sex. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're even close to it. And I think what you're talking about with the commercials is part of the sort of uh, muddy picture of it all. Yeah, I don't know when we'll get there. Even if you, you know, you're, you're starting, you're dating someone and you bring up like, oh, let's both get tested. They become very defensive. Why, why do you want me to get tested? Do you think I'm nasty? Do you think I'm dirty? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> I think we should both know our status when we're entering a new, you know, relationship. Yeah. Because things happen. So, yeah, just, 
just like you would want to know when you're entering in a relationship, what other STDs one might have. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> I think that points to the stigma. There's still so much stigma. Um, I'm not even sure people are aware of the fact that there's drugs that make people undetectable. And I, yeah, it's that's been the hardest thing, Alex. I really have to say dealing with the stigma has been the hardest thing over these um, almost 35 years now. But I mean, I'm all for the drugs that's making, you know, HIV and AIDS undetectable. I personally know someone that's been living with the diagnosis for about 10 to 12 years. And um, she's just, she's really sick. So, um, Mm. but you know, I help her with like her diet and everything like that. But, I feel like many people would take advantage because I always ask her, I say, Hey, you know, you're, you're on these drugs. Do you care to tell the person that you're with, um, that you're positive? And, you know, a lot of times her response is why they can't get it. You know, I'm, if I take my medication and I do what I have to do, there's no point. And that makes me, sometimes want to be against that kind of drug because you have people with those thoughts like why should I have to tell you that I'm positive I'm infected if what's the point you can't get it you know it's it's dormant it's within me and I'm like well what if you get a cut it's not that I can't get it it's just it's harder and then those those kind of people actually irritate me <laughs> and to know one personally it's it's like it gets mind-boggling sometimes so what yeah i think talking? if the situations were reversed um most of us who were who are hiv negative would want to know if the person we're involved in a relationship is hiv positive i think it's only natural um but i i also think that kind of goes back to the stigma um not to speak for this your friend in particular, but I think one of the reasons people who are HIV positive are still hesitant to reveal that fact to people is because it comes, it still comes with so much stigma and judgment. Um, right. I mean, I'm, I'm a gay man. Okay. Mm-hmm. I date and have relations with other gay men. However, when meeting those gay men, say on dating apps or in real person, however we get to the we get to the part, oftentimes those gay men do when they find out I'm HIV positive, do not want to be with me. Mm. Um, regardless of whether I'm undetectable or not, uh, regardless of my health, it's like that's an automatic disqualifier. This is among gay men mm-hmm. who have been dealing with this, I think, more intensely than than other groups. And if gay men are going to still be that, uh, avoid HIV positive that much, what does that say for the the prospects of other people who aren't gay and how they feel about HIV? And so I think that makes a person who's positive 
sensitive about telling someone, especially if they're undetectable. I can, I can understand someone saying, well, you don't need to know this, but I think that's a wall that a person puts up because of the stigma that's forced upon them. But I, I do think the desire not to tell comes from the fear of being rejected. Um, right. Sometimes on those on the on the dating apps, mm-hmm. I don't even want to get there or go on it because I know the chances of someone coming back with something that tells me they're ignorant, they're rejecting me because they're scared, they think I'm dirty, they're still judging me. All those things that have been going on for the past forty years with this disease. I just get sick and tired of it. Um, so sometimes I won't even get to the part where I'm disclosing it. I'll just, you know, cut things off before that because I don't want to have that rejection again. Maybe I don't feel like it that day. Mm. Certainly no justification for um, your friend or anyone else. But I guess I'm trying to maybe shed a little light on where that comes from. Oh yeah, I mean, I under I understand it. It's a it's not it's not hard to understand why someone would behave that way. You know, I, I definitely get it. It's it's I get it. You're you're in between a rock and a hard place, and of course, you don't want to disclose anything to anyone that you don't seem to think there's substance. Right. But if you're dating someone in my opinion if you're dating someone and you know it's not even dating if you've crossed that threshold and being intimate with that person or you know you want to be intimate with that person I think that you owe that other person right you owe it to them to make that choice you're taking away someone's choice and that's what bothers me you're taking my choice away to ask to say, okay, I'll stay, I'll be here with you, mm-hmm. you know, and I find that to be very selfish. I can see, I can understand that. And I do believe, um, by all means, by any means, a person has a right and should ask under any situation. You have a right to ask someone what they have and don't have when it comes to, uh, transmittable diseases right so and i believe that onus should be on the person to ask i'm certainly not advocating someone lying about it um Mm -hmm. and if i'm asked i'll certainly be honest um but it is up to that it is up to i think it's it's up to the person it's up to any individual to be responsible for their own um health and that and that responsibility also comes in asking a person, are you HIV positive? Do you have these, you know, an STD? Do you have this one? Do you have that one? You know, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know. How does that work? How does that sound for you? <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I agree. It's kind of like when men say to women after the, a female comes to them and says, oh, I'm pregnant. Well, why weren't you on birth control? The onus is on both of us. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that doesn't make sense at all. And and so, yeah. And so I don't know in terms of your friend, and I don't know how specific you want to get, but um, I would hope that that friend doesn't lie 
and is upfront about things. And because you're very right, that's the only way, that is the only way to go in terms of, um, well, sometimes I'll tell people I'm HIV positive and they'll say, uh, thanks for telling me. And I sometimes, and I say to myself, and sometimes I say to them, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. It's, Absolutely. it's my peace of mind. It's me not wanting someone panicking later on and saying, why didn't you do this? It, you know, it's, it's, it's first for me. Cause you know, you need to serve yourself before you can serve someone else. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> brother. Thank you. You know, people just don't understand that. Yeah. And you make it, you make so much sense when you talk about the pregnancy thing. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's it's very much the same whether it's a baby or an AIDS baby it takes two to make it and um yeah that's very interesting so what advice would you um have for people that's been recently diagnosed with uh, hiv i still love the the biggest uh piece of advice that helped me all those years ago and that was when someone said um, you're not guaranteed to die of AIDS. Hmm. Um, that was told to me uh, during an AIDS information meeting. Back in the 80s, the only way to get information about what science was doing with AIDS and what we should do was go to these information meetings, usually held in maybe a gym or a park uh, facility, and it'd be packed with people, all just sort of panicked and scared, many of them looking quite sick. And we'd listen to people talk about what we should do. And one guy said, you know, you're not guaranteed to die of AIDS. And the whole room just kind of lifted up a little bit as if it, ne it had never dawned on them. Right, you could die across the street. Absolutely. Um, so many other ways. And I think that's been a very, a, a very, um, big help to me to always realize that. And also another thing that I try to advise people is never take any one doctor's appointment, one set of test results, one diagnosis, never take any one day at the doctor's as the determiner of your life. You just never know. You just really never know. That goes with anything. That goes with any I, diagnosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of what living with HIV, especially being diagnosed back when it was a death sentence, what it did for me and a lot of people, it gives you that sort of deathbed perspective where you start kind of living your life closer to how you want to live. So when mm -hmm. you're on your deathbed, you're not, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. Mm -hmm. you, you kind of had this perspective, well, I better do it now. And um, right. so those are the kinds of things that, that have helped me, you know, focusing on the moment, um, not taking anything for granted, not buying into a, a scenario that says you're going to die of this and that, um, mm -hmm. and, and being your best. It's all about being your best mentally, physically, and spiritually, whatever that is, however you get there, however you find it for yourself. That's really your best um way to approach life and health from any angle exactly you shouldn't and need any kind of diagnosis for that like no. that should be an everyday thing 
but that's good advice for people that have um, recently found out that, you know, they've been diagnosed because even as, as we've been saying, the stigma is still there, you know, and people will go and not get tested or they'll get tested and not get treatment because they feel as though, okay, now I have, I'm getting treatment. My name is on a list for the CDC. If something happens, you know, and it's just like, well, take a breath first and go from there. Yeah. And I think the stigma can be really big in the black community as well. Um, That's why uh, people of color are disproportionately affected by HIV. And then people of color are disproportionately the ones who aren't getting the treatment, aren't sticking to the treatment. And a lot of it is the stigma. But um, you've really got to, above all things, you've got to have a doctor. You've got to see a doctor. You've got to talk about getting on the medication. The earlier you confront any illness or anything going on with your body, the better. And um, it's really just about, again, taking accepting personal responsibility for doing the things you can do to be healthy and survive. Absolutely. And I know that sounds, maybe I sound comfortable just sort of spouting that out now, but these are really hard lessons that I've had to learn over and over for the last 35 years. I believe it. (laughs) I definitely believe it. I've, I've done a lot of crying, a lot of soul searching, a lot of growing mentally, physically, a lot of um, reaching out to and accepting the love of my mother. Mm. How did Uh, she take this? Well, she took it like a champ. She, um, I might get a little misty here. I, I lost my mother this year. Oh, my condolences. Thank you. Uh, one of the greatest things has been to live this long and not go before her. I mean, telling her, I told her when I, you know, when that doctor told me in uh, 1988, um, I called, you know, the doctor said, you don't have AIDS, you have the AIDS virus. I hung up with the doctor. I called my mother. Uh, she was in another state. I was out here in California. And I said, the doctor said, I have it. She knew what was going on and I was getting tested. And um, she said she loved me. And then, and then I hung up and I, and I went to do aerobics because I had a class schedule and I was getting in shape and feeling good. But from that moment on, my mother was nothing but absolutely 100% supportive and positive and there for me. Um, and I'm so thankful for the wonderful relationship we had all those years. It was great to see her live to be 83 Wow. Um, yeah, we um, we had a lot of times where we were just very thankful that we had all these years together. And she she gave me all the love I needed to help me through it. I tell you, <laughs> you're one of the lucky ones. No, really, seriously, you are definitely one of the lucky ones because I can hear it now. You know, someone telling their parents excuse me, that they are gay or lesbian. And then years later saying that 
you know, they have HIV. I can hear the parents now. Well, that's what you get for being gay. That's, you know, God punishing you. So to have a mother that stuck by your side and was your rock, that is a beautiful thing because not many people have that. I feel very fortunate, Alex. And um, I can't say that my the rest of my family has been as supportive as she has. But um, she's, yeah, I definitely think my mother's love is a big part of why I'm here today, a few days from 2020. And, uh, you know, I'm just really grateful I had all these years with her. Oh, that's a good thing. And I know you probably had it in your mind, like, I'm not going before you, mom. I'm not going before you, you know, and because that, that would have probably killed her. So I think I know so. It, some shape I, or form you, that was your you know motivation absolutely it was it was huge it was huge um it, it just I, I didn't to to bring that much kind that kind of pain on a parent I think is something you just one of the things you want to avoid in in your life you know right up at the top of the list and um I'm so glad that that didn't have to happen. I'm so glad I was able to be there for her in her old age. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm very thankful for that. And I'm actually surprised I'm kind of getting through talking about her without just breaking down. <laughs> so. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. No, it, it's, it's okay. She, you know, my mother's a big part of my life and a big part of my story. And I'm so grateful for her um, support. Like I said, it, it wasn't always forthcoming from the rest of the family. And I think that's something a lot of people face, but a lot of people, especially in the black community face, you know, mixed right. reactions from their family on being gay and having HIV. Mm -hmm. or just having HIV. So, so what do you uh, think that needs to happen to reduce that stigma? I think people with HIV, we need to keep telling our stories. We need to um, be real with our loved ones. We need to show them who we are. Um, I know it can be difficult. But I think it's up to us to humanize ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us. And part of humanizing ourselves is talking about it with people. Make them talk about it if you have to. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think um, media needs to work on that you know especially in this day and age and into 2020 i mean look at our president he can't go one day without being on twitter media is a big part of society and when hiv and aids is um like when someone with hiv and aids is on a show it's kind of like in passing it's not um focused now poise poise is changing the game but then again poise is wrapped around the lgbt community so in a way it's kind of feeding the stigma of being black and being gay and that's how you get 
HIV and AIDS, even though poise, you know, is based on the 80s. So it's appropriate. Right. I think we need other shows that are based on the now where it could be um, straight, straight people that have HIV, that have AIDS. It could be like a married, um, like a married couple, how Tyler Perry did for the, for the colored girls. And, you know, I loved how he did that, but again, it was in passing. Well, all their stories were kind of like in passing. It wasn't right. like a focus. And I think that's what we need. We need to bring more focus to it because that's how we relate um, our lives is through books, through media and everything like that. And I think that's what writers and directors, you need to write a screenplay. Randy, what's going on? Like, help us out, you know? Help people. Help our people. I love these novels and blogs, but come on. Get to, get it together, Randy. Get it together. I need to get it together, huh, Alex? Yes. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. I, I am working on my next novel, and I do think it's it's great for a screenplay, maybe even a streaming, um, a streaming series on one of the streaming services. And... Um, so so we'll see we'll see yeah and it doesn't have to be a gay brother it could be you know a regular person right well, well now absolutely i i couldn't agree more like a non-gay person well now the 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 story i'm working on now does have some gay people in it but it does center around a family of black mad scientists it's science fiction mm-hmm. it's a family of black mad scientists They've been they've been mad scientists for generations, going back to the Civil War, mm-hmm. and and the story really revolves around two brothers, um, who are the current generation of that that family, and um, one of them is gay and one of them is straight, and they love each other completely, and they do a little mad science. Uh, experiment on a group of people with AIDS. Some of the people in the group are gay. Some of them are not. Some of them are black. Some of them are other things. I'm trying to make a um, I'm trying to make a representation of my world, which is all kinds of people. As inclusive as possible, of course. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, So, we'll see. Maybe that could be the screenplay. Maybe I'll come to you and say, Alex, I got my screenplay now. Let's do a podcast about that. Yeah, I would love it. I would love it. And, you know, if, if they're gay, they're gay, fine. You know, I just don't want society to keep drumming that drum that you got to be gay and black or gay and white. And that's how you have AIDS. That's right. the one thing. I don't want society to continue to beat that drum. I, I agree. Um, I agree. The two brothers in my book, um, one, like I said, one is gay and one is not, but they both do have HIV. Oh, that's interesting. One of them didn't get it sexually. Wow. Yeah. Yes, I must, I must, this must become... Yeah. <laughs> and that that straight, black, mad scientist doctor with HIV also has a female love interest who's black mm-hmm. and has HIV. Now that's good. That's good. <laughs> That I, is good. But I said this is science fiction. So things kind of happen and, you know, uh, and it gets kind of whack the way science fiction needs to get, you know, needs to go off the rails there. But that's how it starts. That's how it starts. All right, listeners, we, we got to pick up this. 
book, right? I mean, I'm waiting for it. I'm I'm already intrigued. Well, I I, I hope to uh, hope to have it out there sooner than later. So, how do you think people can show people living with HIV support? I know you mentioned your mom was your rock, and she was very supportive um, through your journey, but how do you think anyone can show support to someone living with HIV and AIDS? This is where I can start singing the, the Beyonce song from Dreamgirls, Listen. Um, I think people can listen, um, not be afraid to talk about it, not be afraid to ask questions, certainly not be afraid to fall in love. Um, I think it sounds cliche and simple, but I don't think people still think of people with HIV as real people. Right? No, they don't. They really don't. So um, they can start thinking of us that way. And um, talking and listening to your friends. It's very good advice. I think society just needs to listen more, period. Yeah. That's just, we just need that in general. I guess we're getting there because we're listening to a lot of different voices now. More voices than we've ever heard before. But are we really listening? Well, and listening as much as you can listen in this day and age where you know, things are bombarding you in different ways and different angles and so many, you know, things at a time. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think about Black Panther, the way that's where people responded to that. I think about the abundance of um, Black talent on and behind the screen uh, right. with so many different television. And, you know, you say television now, but that really means, you know, streaming and everything else. So many different Black voices there, so many women voices, so many um, other people of color voices. Um, So I think, I think we're going, I mean, that not that what all the the reaction and the president and, you know, uh, however you would characterize people, Trump supporters, it's all kind of a reaction to the fact that all these voices are getting out there and being heard, right? Right. about what happened to my old America where there was just three channels and three white guys telling me the news every night (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I didn't live in that that America (laughs) I don't think I could have survived yeah I I'm a millennial and not like oh like one of those millennials that are lazy and things like that I'm just saying I had the privilege to always speak my mind and yeah. I don't think I could not speak my mind <laughs> yeah <laughs> the further you go back in time the more it's like how could they not say something right exactly how could you live like that but it was a different time and you know mm-hmm. uh, only certain people had guns <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Most most black people didn't have guns, and that's why you know. That's not the case now. <laughs> no. <laughs> but 
is not the case now. And more black people are getting them legally. So I, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That matters to a white cop, but hey. <laughs> we're still well again, a- again, I mean, I-, I think of the Black Lives Matter, just the slogan itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I think about how 200 years ago people were trying to say that and no one was even listening. Yeah. And 100 years ago, no one was listening. And now they're kind of listening. They still, don't, a lot of people don't understand it. They're going, all lives matter. But the fact that, you know, I guess that we're having the conversation, I think the idea that Black Lives Matter is like a revelation to America's conscience. Mm-hmm. Just that phrase that it even exists, I think. Because I don't think people really thought that at all on any level before recent times. Right. So I, I think, think just, so. The, just the concept that, oh, a Black life mattering? Should a Black life matter? That's progress, right? I, I, I believe so. But then again, I know my history and I know how Moors you know, had taken over Spain for about 800 years. And, you know, me being Caribbean of Haitian descent and how in 1804, we took back our land. I I just think white people are bitter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think they look back and they're like, no, this is when black people had it. No, 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 no. We got to torment them for 500 years because of this one (laughs) incident that they were on top. I think that's what it is. I'm convinced. I'm very convinced. And if it wasn't for the Black Moors that were in, in Spain those, those many years ago, they wouldn't have math. They wouldn't have guns. I mean, the only reason you guys are able to kill us is because of us. We need to, like, keep our knowledge to ourselves. That's what we need to do. You know what I mean? We don't get credit for anything. Like, come on. Isn't that the truth? We're not getting credit for any of these things until <laughs> someone wants to write a movie and white America's like, a black person came up with this? Yes, we came up with this. <laughs> Your little GPS, that's black person. Your little video games, that's a black person. And I'm saying there's so many things <laughs> out there. It's a black person. And I feel like, you know, for me, I take pride in, you know, teaching my daughter um, black history and, you know, as many times she goes to school and the teachers want to say to her, oh, the, you know, feed her false information. And she'll get up and say, well, that's absolutely incorrect because my mama taught me better. And here's a book. Mm, <laughs> nice. You know, um, and I get a lot of calls. Oh, your daughter is rude or being insubordinate. I'm like, what was the issue? Did she tell you how to teach? <laughs> because... Don't call me if that's the case. How old is your daughter? 15. Oh, wow. So now they know not to call me. (laughs) She's got her own opinions and things. Yes. And I I, I feel like, you know, she's gonna, she's just like, just like I had to go through this. I mean, you're going to get a lot of people that are going to want to shoot you down. Gabrielle Union just had to go through this with her right. <clears throat> because of her voice. And, you know, too many Black women have to um, just 
become silent if they feel as though, because they feel as though if they're not and they show who they really are and their strength, that they won't get anywhere in life. And that narrative needs to change. Right, right. Well, and that's been something that women in general have been changing for the last, you know, hundred or so years. But it's only been working um, with sisters, you know? mm Mm-hmm. Turn when it's my turn. Right that's to- right. That's right. I don't know, but um, do you have any dietary tips for individuals living? Gosh, um, eat more, ex- eat less, exercise more. Um, you in the black community, isn't it? I think um, so much of it. I learned to control my eating by um, you have to find what's right for you. And what I found was right for me was making sure I had enough protein every day, which was, which is about um, half your body weight plus another half or your, or something like that. There's a formula for protein. Uh, So let's say I weigh 200 pounds. I need to eat um, 100 grams plus 50 grams half of it plus another half, right? So I mm-hmm. make sure I eat enough protein each day and basically um, get a little exercise of some kind and that just sort of helps. That sort of works for me. Um, not being too obsessed with the food, but of course eating healthy. There's so much out there. There's so many different ways. I think it's just a matter of finding the ones that work for you, but the, the equation is always the same. You have to eat a little less and exercise a little more. Right. I think that that could work for anyone. Right. Right. And there's so many different ways to do that. So writing, uh, you said you've been writing for how many years now? Uh, well, I got my first writing job at 20. So, um, I don't know, that's 37 years now. So what's your creative process like? Gosh, it depends on the depends on the what I'm creating, but um, I use my imagination a lot before I put anything put anything down on paper. Um, when I go through my first couple of drafts, I try to give myself as much freedom to write without censoring myself, without editing. Uh, leave all that for later, and. Um, then just one, once that process is over, get to the editing and just sort of meticulously whittle it, da- whittle it down to, I think, the most efficient thing I want to say. Um, I think being honest with myself is an important part of the process. Honesty mm-hmm. of perception. Am I, say, am I putting something down that I really believe? Do I really feel this way? Does this really ring true? Would someone really understand this? Mm-hmm. Um, and try to be entertaining when when appropriate, and thought provoking either way. Right. Okay. So you've been writing for thirty something years. What would you tell your ten year old self? <laughs> Gosh. Um. Come up with the internet. 
Oh my gosh, I'm pretty sure everybody would have wanted to say that to their 10 year old self. Gosh, I, I think I would, um, I think I would encourage myself to not give up and to, I think I would encourage myself to learn to love myself, but that brings me the question, well, what does that mean? That mm-hmm. means accept myself for being okay. Mm. Um, I think we see ourselves, yeah, it really is hard. We see ourselves through other people's eyes, our peer group, especially when we're in school, we look at ourselves, how they look at us, and I think it's really important to understand how unimportant that is. That's hard in the moment. It really is. It seems like everything. Yeah, that's very hard in the moment. I'm, I mean, I know there's 30, 40, 50 year old people that still battling that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a lifelong challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. I would say go to therapy. I would tell myself to go to therapy. At 10 years old? Yeah. Oh, I believe as soon as someone, you know, is conscious of not enough of their, you know, feelings that they should, you know, go to therapy. I'm I think so. Very surprised. You know, every time I hear a black man speak about therapy, I become like elated, you know, like all oh, my lights are going off and <laughs> everything. It's just refreshing. It is really refreshing. That's nice you know, to hear. To hear a black person. And I know some listeners are going to be like, well, he's gay. No, believe me, I know many black gay men that, you know, is not your stereotypical of a gay man like they're not flamboyant they're not this they're just like any other man right they're just gay right so to hear a black man say oh you know therapy and to even mention a 10 year old that's not comfortable in their own skin and needs someone to speak to should go to therapy again that is very refreshing to hear well well i went through stuff um, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe other 10-year-olds have had an easier life, and surely some have had harder lives. But I went through stuff, and stuff that I needed to talk about at 10, and stuff that I needed to talk about at 15 and 20. And it, re- it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I went to therapy, but I needed someone before that for that sounding board, for someone to listen. You know, a lot of therapy, I think, is is listening to yourself and talking it out, and when you when you're explaining things you kind of come to realizations and you you sort of recognize things going on so a lot of the process is just you explaining it and then you kind of understand it better yourself mm-hmm. and um who who couldn't use someone to talk to in in that way you know a therapist is not going to change the subject <laughs> onto their life and and so forth and you know they're going to keep you on point who couldn't use that that's what I say all the time. I mean, life you know? is hard for, especially for an African-American in America. Yes. We 
we as a race need therapy growing up in this hateful ass culture. Thank you. Say it louder for the people in the back that couldn't hear you. They need to say it a little louder. Yes. Therapy. Therapy. I need our, our, whoever's our next president to like speak on that. Okay. That's what we need. I mean, we grow up in this hateful ass world of so many things going on with, you know, just because you're black. Yeah, we need therapy. I needed therapy at 10 and I still probably need it in some ways. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. There's no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I see it as a sign of strength. I never saw therapy as a sign of weakness. I saw seeking it out as a sign of strength. It is because talking to someone about all your deepest, darkest thoughts, moments, it's hard. Yeah. It is very hard to unload on someone else and for them to honestly just write on a notepad stare at you nod you know not really yeah. give a lot it, it 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 puts you in an anxious state sometimes so it's not easy to go to therapy i don't know why people feel as though it's easy and they're not there to tell you what to do and what no. not to do. you come to that realization yourself absolutely i think if more people knew that and they understood that um they'd be more open to it you would think you would think but I don't well, know. Maybe that's something that we can dream of becoming more uh, accessible and acceptable in the Black community. You know what it is? I always tell people it's our own fault because within the Black community, we're not inclined to um, push our children to become therapists. We're mm. not. So, and a lot of black people need someone that's relatable. So they, they go to therapy and it's a white man or a white woman. And already in our minds, we're saying to ourselves, this person has absolutely no idea how I'm feeling, what I go through. They're white. And you're absolutely right. They, all they can have is understanding and empathy. But if you want someone relatable, if we need relatable people, then we need to begin to encourage our children to become therapists instead that's of that's a saying, very good point we are we don't we we're not therapists like black people don't become therapists like that's not what we do why is that not something that we can do very interesting question and point there yes i i would say it's uh, probably because of the stigma again the same reason that black people don't go to therapy is probably the same reason why a lot of blacks don't become therapists because of the stigma around mental health. Right. I don't understand. The but I do think it's changing. It's the same. I, I do think it's changing, though. It is. It is changing. It, it definitely is. You have um, a lot of black people especially like black men i'm not uh you're from you're living in california but um out here we have like a a radio professional um he's like sort of like a dj as well his name is charlemagne and he's very big on black men and therapy um common the rapper um he just came out with a book that's encouraging 
uh, people to go to therapy, especially black men. So it is changing. And I think we just need more prominent people to speak about it. And it's sad that we need that in society today, but I think that's what we need. If, you know, people with the dollars and the Benjamins come out and say, hey, I'm going to therapy. Maybe some of us little people will go to therapy. Sort of like HIV, we need to reduce the stigma around mental health and HIV. We do, we do. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying there's more people out there probably with it. You know, I am saying that. There are probably more celebrities out there that have HIV that are not coming out. I mean, it can't just all be Magic Johnson here. You know, like right. there's more of you. Like, let's let's start speaking up so that little people like me and you can um, be comfortable with it. Yes. Yes. Especially now that people with HIV can live longer lives and and lives where HIV doesn't have to be the main thing in their life. There's so many other ways that people with HIV can contribute. Um, and hopefully the world will see more of that. I hope so too. So speaking on black community and black culture, what do black community and black culture mean to you? What do black, the black community and black culture mean to me? Well, hmm. It's certainly our American story um, as seen through our eyes. I think um, it means a series of mixed things for me. I mean, there's so much we've done that is wonderful and great. Um, so much of the struggle we still have left. And also, um, sometimes I can feel marginalized by Black culture, the same way I'm marginalized by white culture in being uh, same gender loving and then also being um, living with HIV. You know, sometimes I can be marginalized that way. But um, it's what we have. I mean, it's it, it's sort of like family. <laughs> you know, you mm -hmm. accept and love your family for for all its all its good and bad points. And I think Black culture is the same way for me. Okay. So, with that, what do you say to people that still believe that gay people spread HIV and AIDS? Well, people spread HIV and AIDS. You don't have to be gay. Um, in most of the world, uh, HIV is not a disease that affects disproportionately gay people. In, say in Africa, um, it's not a predominantly gay disease. So it may look that way here in America, but that's not the case it's not even the case here in America. It's certainly not the case in the rest of the world. And it, the reason it looks that way in America is because that's all we've seen in the media, gay people. But, um, and also then I would 
speak to what is a gay person. Um, there are men who have sex with men and don't consider themselves gay. Yes, brother. I was just speaking to someone about that in the other podcast. And he was like, really? I didn't know that. I'm like, yeah, sexuality is an umbrella, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a, right. And, and we're learning that more and more, right? And, mm -hmm. and also, um, it's important to note that the CDC, when they began tracking AIDS and trying to get a hold on how it was, you know, playing out in the, in the country, they were asking men, you know, are you gay? And they would say no. And they realized they weren't getting to the heart of what was going on. So that they created a whole new category called men who have sex with men. And, and that's how they were more accurately able to track the disease. Gay, gay is a, um, is a marketing term. To be gay is to be some sort of stereotypical idea of what everyone thinks is gay right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like a fashion trend. Mm. But sexuality and men having sex with men is not a trend. It's just a part of nature that's going to be here regardless of what is the current fashion right now. And there are plenty, especially of black men, who don't see themselves as gay because they don't see themselves as this marketing version of gay. You know, absolutely. You know, let's say the couple, the gay couple on Modern Family, that's the marketed version of gay. Will and Grace, marketed version of gay. Um, you know, happy gay free men dancing and, you know, to Madonna, those are marketed versions of gay. People, do those things, but not everybody does those things, and not everybody does those things all the time, and there are plenty of people who don't do those things at all, but they do have sex with men. They might not be, in, they might not even have gay friends, they might not even have gay relationships, but they have sex with men. Right. And so, um, I forget what the question was, but I think <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my big questions. What do you say to people that think? Oh, right. Because, well, like when I was first having sex with men as a, as a horny young teenager, I would go mm -hmm. out to the only places that were available to me in the 70s and 80s. And those were bookstores, adult bookstores, bathhouses, and back alleys. The only place you could go to, you know, find someone to satisfy your physical urge. And the men mm -hmm. I were, the men I would mostly meet, they weren't gay. They weren't living a gay lifestyle with gay friends and gay lovers and going to gay bars and listening to gay music. They were just men. Many of them had wives or they had girlfriends or they were single. Mm -hmm. And so I never saw sexuality or homosexuality as just being something tied strictly with being gay in the first place. Right. It's not, you know, and I was speaking to, um, the last guy that was um, on the podcast here, uh, 908, and I was trying to explain to him, I was saying, I've actually had like gay friends that say many of their partners are straight men. And reason being is because black women are so, <clears throat> excuse me, they're so close-minded when it comes to sex. So the same way a female has a G-spot, it just so happens to be the guy's G-spot is over there. 
So, and I always say, if you don't want to lose your man to another man, then you need to satisfy those urges. And if you think doing that makes him less of a man, then you need to be prepared for him to be with another man. Yeah. Uh, men will explore. Men will explore, yeah. that's for sure. So it was an amazing, amazing, amazing show. I loved all the talking points. You definitely had some gems for us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but was there, uh, was there anything else that you would like to share with us that I didn't get to ask? Um, gosh, let's see. Well, if anyone's interested in any of my novels, they can, they're available at wherever most books are sold as ebooks, as well as traditional print books. Um, you can check my website, randyboydsblocks.com. That's blocks like a child plays with blocks that have letters to make words that say something. <laughs> He's still getting very specific, like, this is what I mean by blocks. <laughs> I don't think there's many ways to spell blocks. Right. <laughs> but hey, you never know. You never know. You never know. This day and age. So, um, yeah. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of them. There's a couple of thrillers. Um, there's one that's a story of a, a, a college cheerleader who's black and a college quarterback who's white. And the quarterback goes on to become the first openly gay superstar athlete to come out during his prime mm. and it changes the world and it happens back in the 90s and there's all kinds of nostalgia and trivia that goes along with it you know that time and that era it's called walt loves the bearcat that's my latest novel and probably my uh, most significant achievement so far um but walt loves the bearcat along with my other novels and um, information about my other writing, it's all online at Randy Boyd Author on the social sites or Randy Boyd's Blocks or Randy Boyd and, and you'll find me. All right. Thank you, Randy. You guys, like, like I've been saying this whole time. Please, please check him out. If not for his novels, you need to check out his body. You need to really, really check this man out. And you need to DM him so he can be your personal trainer, okay? HIV, AIDS or not, I'm going to be 50-something years old, damn near 60 looking as good. You know, listen, I need you, Angela Bassett. I need all of y'all oh <laughs> put together something for us. So we could be looking as fine when we're 60, like all of y'all. Okay? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to keep up with my sister who's five years older than me. She's, she's the beautiful one of the family. So I'm just trying to keep up with her. You need to put her picture up too. Look, listen. I keep telling her that. I keep telling her that. She won't do it. She's a little too shy. She takes pictures. She takes the picture. She takes plenty of selfies. She's beautiful. And I love, I'm glad she's doing it. I love her and I'm glad she's doing it, but she, she, she won't put them up online yet. All right, you guys. Thank you again, Randy. Check him out. Check him out. Please, please. If you don't believe me, I'm not raving for no reason. I'm not. I'm not. Yo, black does not crack. And you know what? He looks better now than he did when he was like 20. 
that's all that Listen. personal growth inside, you know. <laughs> you look a lot. I'm telling you, he, I'm telling you, fellas, fellas, get. Are you taken? Are you taken? I am single. Okay, okay, yes, he is single. Are you hear this, fellas? Listen. <laughs> single and ready to mingle with y'all. Y'all know his status. Y'all know he, he looking fine out here because I'm telling you he's looking fine out here. And y'all know he's smart and can articulate his words. So what else does he need for y'all? Right? Do Come on. Let's, let's have him. Keep him coming now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hun. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. You're 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 wonderful. Thank you very much. You have a blessed one now. You too. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Join me again in thanking Randy Boyd for an amazing interview. I am, I am like baffled right now and lost for words. I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to have this phone interview with Randy, uh, very vulnerable and raw. And I'm grateful that you guys were there with me to share in the experience. I know that I learned a few things that I didn't know before and to be living and surviving with HIV in 30 years, that's remarkable to say the least. So if you want to check him out once more, uh, look them up, randyboydsblocks.com. And I'm telling you guys, to almost be 60 years old and to have a body like Randy's, it's amazing. It is honestly amazing. And um, to add being HIV and AIDS positive, you know, that is even more amazing. So check them out. You will not, I promise you, you will not regret it. And just remember, you guys, what we think, we become. <laughs>